Good morning, uh, Church of the Beloved. Thanks so much for joining us today in person or online. So good to see you all. I, I have to say, if this is the first time that you're joining with us, I'm Pastor Abe, uh, and I'm so glad you're here. I, we'd love to get you connected with our church family. So I'm going to ask that you text COTB to 97000, or you can go to our website, cotb.life, and you can tap the Connect With Us button there. Um, this has been a, another hard week here in the U.S. We've got the trial of George Floyd's killer. Uh, as was mentioned, killing of another black person, Dante Wright, by a white officer in Minnesota. We've got the shooting death of uh, Adam Toledo here by a Chicago cop. It's a dark time, and I, I have a feeling that it's weighing heavily on a lot of folks. Um, Peter, thank you so much for leading us in that time of prayer. It's kind of weird having you here and then doing it virtually, but we really knew, do need to consider this particular moment in history. And as I was preparing for today, um, one overarching thought, truth, kept coming to mind, and that's God is sovereign. God is sovereign through all of this. And, and if God is sovereign, if, if God's got a plan, and we know as that part of that plan, God intends for us to have joy then God intends for us to have joy, not in spite of this darkness, but, but through this darkness. Before we too get too deep into that and that idea in today's passage and message, I, I'm going to ask you, if you would, please join with me. I want to dedicate this time, this message to God, this space to God. Let's pray. Precious Father, Dad, you are our, our God, our King, our, our Savior, our friend. And we humbly come before you because you alone, God, are worthy of all the worship, glory, all the devotion. No one else is worthy. No one, nothing else. And may this time be edifying to your beloved children and be a sweet song to your ears, oh God. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Now, last week I presented a joy formula from Philippians. Jesus, others, you. Right? And consider Jesus first, then you love others next, and that will equal your joy. Today's passage is a real-life example of how Paul, by putting Jesus first, was able to experience joy. How Paul, in spite of, uh, or because of some really crappy circumstances, was putting Jesus first and was able to experience joy. If you're somebody who likes to take notes, here's where we're going to go today. Today's main topic is this. Suffering for Jesus has three E's uh, that I believe allow you to find joy. Simply suffering for Jesus, it elevates the gospel, it encourages others, and it eclipses me. Suffering for Christ, it elevates, it encourages, and it eclipses. I want to break that down a little bit more today. You know, and last week, I uh, presented some context around Paul's situation. I'm not going to go through that all again but just to summarize, Paul's life was rough. He was in prison, away from his friends, and all the plans that he had made to live a life that he believed God intended for him, planned for him, it wasn't happening. And keep that in mind as we continue on today. It was just a bad situation for him. What I do want to do is take a minute to talk about a little bit of history, and very specifically letter writing history. Now, I'm not sure how long it's been since you've ever written a letter or even received an actual letter. I know you all know this before there was tweeting and texting and 
TikToking. There's before these became the primary means of communication, letters would be delivered manually, not digitally, uh, and, and it would be sent to a person. I'll tell you, I used to do it back in the 1900s or 1980s, however you want to see it. I would write letters to my family in Korea because calling them was just too expensive and too much of a headache. And since I was a kid, I would follow a basic template, you know, a basic letter template. I would basically say, dear so-and-so, how are you doing? I am fine. I did something amazing. I hope you hear from you soon. Love me. That was my template. That was what I wrote as a kid. My wife and I, Suzette, we, we support a few missionaries. They serve in different countries. And some of them still send us letters, paper updates, reporting back on how they're doing personally, how, how, how their ministry is going. They're using paper because it's much harder to, to monitor and track paper. Uh, a lot of these individuals are serving in places that not only do not want the gospel there nor necessarily desire it, but it's dangerous for them. And when we get these reports, these letters from people, we, we, we know exactly what to expect and what to find because they're also following a, a template. You know, like, dear supporter, I'm doing okay. Maybe some aches and pains. I shared the gospel with these people and I did these things for the ministry and will you pray for me this way? And then your sister in Christ, her, whatever her name would be. And I'm pointing out these little nuggets of historical practice around letter writing because Paul used them as well. This, this letter to, to his friends in Philippi, he took the standard temple and he used the, the same ones that the ancients had established and then he threw in a few twists and turns that would catch the reader or listener off guard, to get their attention. It was enough of a difference from the norm to make the reader or listener stop and say, wait, what? I'm going to give you an example. In the very beginning of this letter, Paul starts off with Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus. He starts off with a very solid salutation, but then he turns it around just a little bit by, by not noting his authority, but rather by noting his standing as a fellow believer, as a fellow slave to our Savior. He does it again in verse 12. In verse 12, it starts off by saying, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, and I'm going to stop there, because if you consider ancient letters, scholars have been able to identify that they do have templates that they follow. The phrase, now I want you to know, in Greek, is that phrase would always precede a report back on how an individual was faring, how they were doing. The person sending a letter would tell them what's going on. So it would be like, you know, now I want you to know that I was feeling sick, but I'm doing okay now. Or, or if we're taking today's context, context, that the pandemic has been really hard and I'm all alone, no one's visiting me and I have no friends and all I see are four walls around me. That's just an example. That's not how I'm feeling. I'm fine. Um, the Philippians... That's what they were expecting when they saw that phrase. They're starting to read or hear this letter, especially because they knew Paul was not doing too hot. He was in prison. He was all alone. They knew he was not going to be giving good news. little side story. When Suzanne and I first joined Church of the Beloved, there was this young woman, and she was a small group leader, uh, someone we'd never met before. We didn't know her name. Her small group was in charge of providing lunch after service that day, back in the day when we would actually have be able to eat lunch together. And as we waited in line to grab our slice of delicious Pizza Hut pizza, uh, she walks up to, up to us. Again, never met her, didn't know her who she was or her name. We're brand new. And she starts to tell us a story. And she starts off her story with this. 
what had happened was, and immediately with that auspicious introduction, we made a new friend. And we heard a great, ridiculous story of how Pizza Hut totally screwed up her order, how they apologized to her, and she was freaking out, and they were so sorry that they gave her double the order of pizzas, and so everyone had to take more than they could actually eat. And I remember Suzanne and I were just standing there, and we were like, okay, don't know who you are. But she started off with, what happened was, and so we knew, we knew that there was a good story coming. And it was. Basically, it's ancient Greek for what happened was. So, so Paul, he's got this letter. He's following the ancient letter writing template. And he writes, now I want you to know what happened was. And, and the readers of the letter, again, you can kind of envision it. Letters were a big deal, as I said. So there are probably a bunch of people sitting around listening as uh, somebody's reading this letter from Paul. A few are probably leaning in. Because, you know, they love Paul, and they know story time, and they want to hear how Paul's doing. But then Paul, in his letter, flips the script. He, he, he mixes it up a little bit. Because he doesn't talk about himself. He doesn't say how he's doing. He doesn't talk about how badly things are going for him. Instead, what he writes is, what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. See, he's saying it's not important what's happening to me at all, but rather what's happened as a result of what's happened to me. See, Paul's reporting that suffering for Jesus is amazingly elevating the gospel. For Paul, God's plan, this gospel story, that needed to be the priority. That needed to go out to everyone possible. So everything for him is about Christ, for the gospel. And for him, this suffering that he was going through, this pain, this was doing exactly what he knew had to happen. It was elevating the gospel so that the redemptive story of Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the cross, so that that might be shared with as many people as possible. Suffering for Jesus was elevating the gospel. For those who are going through dark times right now, whether it's because of COVID, maybe you're sick or someone around you has died, or maybe it's because of the fact that so many people have forgotten that God created every single one of us in his image and that we shouldn't be going around killing and abusing our black, brown, and Asian lives that matter. Or, or, or maybe it's because you're still processing a, a history of violence or, or, or abuse or, or mistreatment. Hear this. This passage does not, absolutely does not say that suffering is a good thing. It is not saying that some suffering is something that you should be seeking out. This is not at all what Paul was intending when he wrote this passage, when he wrote this letter. I think, I think one of the hardest questions that can be asked of a Christian is this. How can you say that God is so good when everything is so bad? You know, I cannot believe in your good, good father when all I have in my life is examples of bad, bad people. Those, those who believe in a vengeful God or a spiteful God or maybe no God at all, I, my opinion is it's, it's much easier. Because the reality is bad things just equal bad luck. But as a Christian, bad things equal God's plan. And that is not an easy sell, Christian or not. That just makes no sense at all, especially if you are living in the midst of those bad 
things. So I want you to hear me when I say this. Suffering is not to be sought after. It is, it is something that can be used to elevate the gospel. It is something that can encourage. It is something that can eclipse you. And I will talk about that more in a second. But it is not something that you should be eliciting. Suffering is not something that you should seek. This passage is not saying that suffering is good. That, that Christians have solved the mystery of suffering. Or that we need to put on fake smiles behind our masks when suffering. Paul calls these things, these experiences, afflictions because that's what they are. Suffering sucks. And the point Paul is wanting to make, and the one I want to highlight here is this. God is sovereign. God, God does not, God will not allow pain to prevail over his plan. There's no easy solution for Christians when it comes to suffering. There isn't. But there's an understanding. The suffering for Christ can elevate the gospel. And this gave Paul joy. You know, the second thing is suffering for Jesus, it can also encourage others. Verse 14, it says this, most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. When I first learned to ride a motorcycle, this is like 30 years ago, uh, a lot of my friends tried to dissuade me. Uh, they would tell me story after story of motorcycle-related accidents. And the one that stuck in my head forever is so, supposedly this person was riding and ru- uh, into a tunnel and fell. And because they're going so fast, they basically got decapitated as they were going through the tunnel. And I'll tell you, hearing all these stories, they did make me pause, but I still got my license. Uh, now I'm considering how to ride a, a one wheel. And for those of you who don't know, one wheel is basically a plank of wood with a big old tire in the middle of it. And so far, every time I've gotten on one, and not many times, and I'm very grateful to my uh, friend Adam, who's trying to teach me how to ride one. But every time I've got onto that one wheel, I've fallen. And I'll tell you, the scar on my knee is still healing from the last fall. It's, not, it's just a scrape. But anyway... I've also recently been hearing that there are a number of folks within our own community, our our church, who also ride one wheels who can't seem to stay on it either. And they've been doing it for years. And I'll tell you, that made me pause as well. Because if experienced riders can't keep from falling, what hope do I have? I'm still probably going to try to learn how to do it. But here's the thing. Bad news is typically not a strategy used to encourage buy-in. In the tech industry, for example, you don't go to a customer and say, hey, You know what, if you install this piece of software, it's going to cause heartache and pain and problems. Are you interested in this? You know, if you you watch TV and watch those drug commercials, uh, they're, they're required to tell you all the possible side effects. And when they do, they intentionally try to read through those as fast as possible. Because, you know, I don't know how many people hear about an amazing drug that might cause diarrhea, dysentery, and death. When you hear that, you don't think, oh, yeah, that's, that's definitely something I want to try. But Paul, and I have a feeling he was probably as surprised as I was when I read this passage. He was realizing that his suffering wasn't dissuading. His suffering for Jesus was actually encouraging others. His his fellow workers in the gospel, his his partners in the ministry, they were being encouraged. They, They were gaining confidence because Paul was suffering. See, the, the people around Paul, they, they, they understood that the suffering that, that he was going through, the pain he was enduring, it was because he loved Jesus. It, it was because he lived by an ethic and a code that 
put Jesus before everything. What resulted were Roman soldiers around him having to pause and ask, ask questions, understanding, trying to understand where Paul's headspace was at. What, what was this about? And so the gospel was elevated. And then his ministry partners, his beloved family, they were so amazed by this that they were encouraged. They were encouraged to live for the gospel themselves. In Romans 8.28, it says, we know that all things work together for the good of, uh, of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, to God's purpose. So Paul, in this letter to the Philippians, and in that letter to the Romans, Paul's pointing out that, that, that God's sovereign, that God has a perfect plan, and that perfect plan is going to take all the sucky suffering that exists and use it for something good. It's rough, but be encouraged right now because this suffering for Christ's sake, it will elevate the gospel and it will bring you joy. The third thing I want to mention, I think that the passage here and what I got from this as I was preparing for today was is reminding us of suffering for Jesus. Ultimately, it eclipses me. And what I mean by that is in, in verse 18. So it says there, what, what does it matter? Only that in every way, whether, whether a, a false motives are true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Because it's not about me. It's all about Christ. See, I think it's worth noting that Paul never was shy about calling out heresy. In his letter to the Galatians, he curses those who preach a gospel contrary to what they had already received. Paul is all about the truth being preached, told well, being told fully. So in this scenario in Philippians, these are folks who are preaching truth. Preaching of how God came to, how Jesus came to earth, how, how Jesus is fully God, simultaneously fully man. Preaching of how Jesus suffered and died on the cross so that his elect, his beloved would not have to. Preaching of how Jesus rose from the dead like we will one day when he establishes his upside down kingdom. So the folks outside of Paul's prison walls were preaching the truth. They were preaching the gospel. Some were doing it because they were encouraged by Paul. They, they, they had loved him. They loved Jesus. They loved the ministry. So that's why they were preaching well. But then there were some who were doing it because they thought they were, that by preaching the gospel, they would diminish Paul. That I'm not totally sure how that would have worked, honestly, but, but that's what was their motivation. That preaching the gospel for some was to hurt Paul. Pastor Otua, David, our associate pastor, he's going to be leaving uh, Church of the Beloved in a couple of months to, to plant a church. And we've talked about a lot of different things. For example, we talked about where his church would be located. Uh, who might or would go from COTB to help establish or plant his church. And, and I know that some may think that these conversations were had because we're trying to avoid awkward situations of him having a church right, like right next door to the Wicker Park campus or uh, resulting in a church split or all of the congregation following David or something like that. that. That actually wasn't the reason we had those conversations. I'll tell you something. I believe that when you're planting a church or sending a missionary into the world, you have to send your best. Not to say the people who stay are not the best, but you absolutely have to send a set of best. Because it's not about me. It's not about my church. It's not about anything like that. It's about God. 
And I've asked David to, to talk to those from COTB. He believes God has called to go with him, to talk to them, have them pray. Don't try to force them because I will fight you on that, but let them seek wisdom because our goal is to advance the gospel for the sake of Christ. Because the gospel is not about me. It's not about COTB. It is about God's beloved hearing the truth and recognizing it. And I will tell you, I will not allow myself or our church to get consumed by comparisons. Because comparing, seeing if we measure up, that is an enemy of joy. See, Paul didn't care about the motives in this case. He cared that the gospel was being elevated. and That others were being encouraged. Because the gospel eclipses everything. I want to mention really quickly, though, motives do matter. Ultimately, the, the ends do not necessarily always justify the means. First Thessalonians in chapter 2, Paul actually writes that he does not speak to please people. He speaks rather to please God who will look at his heart. We are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. Because motivation, heart, it matters. It's just that in this case in Philippians, God was saying, I can still draw a straight line with a crooked stick. See, Paul understood that the suffering for Christ's sake, it eclipsed his personal needs, his personal wants. As long as the gospel is preached, as long as the gospel is elevated, as long as the gospel encouraged, that's what matters. So how do we apply this reality that, that suffering for the sake of Christ it elevates the gospel, encourages the beloved, how it eclipses the individual. How do we apply this? What, what is the application? I'm going to suggest two things before we close out today. First is this. First is that we need to understand simply, God is sovereign. God is sovereign through the suffering. There is no denying that suffering sucks. But God will never allow pain to prevail over his plan. So I ask, trust that truth and hold on to that hope. The second is this, and I ask the band to come on up as I give the second one. The Church of the Beloved, we cannot sit passively and do nothing in the face of the pains, injustices, and suffering that's happening in this world right now. God has told us what is good. He's told us what he requires of each of us. He's told us to act justly, to, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. He's told us that we are not called to be passive observers in this broken world. He's told us that we are called to be actively engaged by being encouraged and by encouraging others so that the gospel can be elevated and so that we can be eclipsed. What active engagement looks like for you, shouting out for those with no voice, standing firm for those with no power, what that looks like for you is something that I cannot tell you. It's something that you will have to discern, but I'm going to say this. We are called to live lives that's not afraid to suffer for Christ. We're not to seek suffering, but we cannot be afraid of suffering. Because the gospel will be elevated so that others will be encouraged. And so that we might be eclipsed by God's glory. So that we might find joy. That is our call.